This is Diego Martinez, and welcome to Tunes, a podcast about the songs we vibe to. On each episode, we explore the context and legacy of an underrated music anthem with the help of its makers. And today, we are walking the warm streets of Miami Beach with producer Louis Martinet and singer Lori Miller, who will discuss their involvement in the recording of a dance music classic, Exposé's Point of No Return. All the people around the studio that would come and hang out and other DJs, hey, that song sounds good. You should put it out. And, and that's what we did. It was something about just the timing, I think, all the chemistry of the three of us and our interaction with the audience and our show was very choreographed and very, but that era, you know, really implemented like a vibe with that music. You know, it's like it's connected. Jose was the brainchild of Miami-based producer, songwriter, and DJ Louis Martinet, an influential figure in the development of Latin freestyle in the early 1980s. From the offset, the group always had the distinction of featuring three lead singers, something rare in those days, with each vocalist possessing a unique style, tone, and personality. Between 1987 and 1993, Exposé recorded three studio albums for Arista and placed eight top 10 singles. One of them, 1988's Seasons Change, went all the way to the top. Years after their last chart single in 1995, Exposé has continued to be a fixture on state fairs, gay prides, and nostalgia concerts across the United States. Their legacy is everlasting, inspiring the formation of other female trios at the time, such as Sweet Sensation, The Cover Girls, and Seduction, and ranking number eight on Billboard's list of the top 10 girl groups of all time. Not bad for a project born out of the imagination of a musician who originally was more inclined to rock than to dance. I started my conversation with Louis Martinet, asking him about how he got his start in the music industry. I just started out in bands. You know, we had a band when I used to live in California and we just practiced just because we all like music. And uh, we were doing, you know, Santana and Malo and you know things like that in the garage and just for fun and then when I got to Miami I got into another band and once again just we just did it because we liked it no reason or rhyme but then a friend of mine said hey I got a studio why don't you guys come record so we did but we didn't know what we we're gonna do so I kind of like thought well let's do this uh, I'm the drummer I'll do the speed you do the bass you do this and and I kind of like started producing just because nobody knew what else to do so I kind of like took over and and started having everybody do parts and I kind of sang it to them or played it for them and then they they did it, you know. But that's how I started actually learning recording and then I kept going into the studio. The funny thing is that the guy that uh, invited me, he used to work for a distributor here in Miami 
big distributor, one of the biggest in the country, Tone Distributors, which were affiliated with TK Records. And he set up a studio in a, in a warehouse. And he thought I, because I DJed at the time and I DJed dance music. So I told him, oh, I have a band. So he oh, well, come over and record thinking that I'm going to do dance music and it was rock. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> so you, you DJ dance music, you know, but when I'm playing, I like to play rock. If I'm going to sit down on the drums and play, I want to play rock. Lewis's headbanging days were numbered when he teamed up with his friend, Frank Diaz. Both men would end up forming Pantera Records in 1983. Lewis produced several dance songs for the label's early roster, including U.S. Rangers' Welcome to Grenada and Woman by a group he put together called Technolust. Then came the idea of forming a girl group. Technology was doing well. And then uh, I did a bunch of songs. You know, I wanted to put a group together. Going, I want to put a group together like the Springs. Three girls, you know, not four. You know, just a concept studio group that's always been done throughout the time, you know, a lot. I didn't want one girl to sing and the other two to be backgrounds. I wanted to each have their own songs and their own style, you know, and things like that. I started writing songs and I wrote, you know, a bunch of songs, songs that never actually made it to any album. And I think they're good, but you know, the other songs maybe were better. But Point of Return started st standing out. Everybody, hey man, that song sounds good. That song sounds good. So I put it out with Frank and it started doing well. And that's what got Arista interested in and signed the, the group. But before Arista could sign the group, it had only existed as a vehicle for Lewis's composition, Point of No Return. The trio's original lineup came about, as it often does, through an audition process, looking for young women in Miami who would fit the mold of what they were looking for. Singer Lori Cuive was the first to be hired for the project, now called Exposed. And although she did rehearse as a member of the group, she never performed with her fellow bandmates in public. Joining her was another local vocalist, Sandra Casañas, a.k.a. Sanday, and Lewis's then-girlfriend Alejandra Lorenzo, known to her friends as Ale. I was dating her at the time, and she sang really good, and I was having her do the demos. And then I go, well, I'm going to find a group now to, to do these songs. So I'm here trying to find somebody that sounds like her. And then Frank says, well, why don't you just put her in the group? Hey, yeah, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> After Lori Crive's departure, the search was on for a replacement. Enter makeup artist and dancer Lori Miller. So I said, you know, Lori is not working out. And I had her, Lori Miller, Frank's girlfriend, singing. I go, you know, you sing really well. Do you want to be in the group? So I had it like Lori, the other Lori go before we even released the first point in return. I was studying, I was taking dance classes and Daria Melendez was one of the teachers that I was taking from as well as Ken Samuels. And that was all from the 
dance factory in New York, that's Jojo Smith style of dancing, which is very funky. It's like a mix of martial arts and ballet and funk. And um, Daria was really close friends with Frank Diaz. They, they used to be do Bible study together. <laughs> and she told me about this audition. I was doing like big um, corporate events did a lot of big, big production shows for Miller Reich here in Miami and also in Philadelphia. And then I was also singing in jazz clubs and I was always sitting in in jazz clubs. I love jazz and blues, it's really my thing. But I also love the energy of dance music and especially if it has a Latin tinge to it. And so I went to a, a dance studio and Frank was there and Ismail, and I don't think Lewis was there that day, but I remember Frank had a towel in his hand and I walked in, he looked at me and he just like threw the towel, like threw the towel down, like, okay, good. <laughs> and that's how we met. And then we ended up being, being a couple and being engaged. And, um, I was actually working with him. It wasn't, I wasn't necessarily hired for expose actually. I was hired for Technolust, and Daria and I were both in it together. We were the backup girls for him. Sugar and Spice. I was Spice. <laughs> but I was so full on, you know, he was like, she needs to do her own thing because she's like stealing my thunder, <laughs> right? Because I was like working it, as always. <laughs> Frank had the idea to do the girl group. And like I said, I didn't really want to be in it, but I wanted to help him. So there was another girl named Lori Crebe, who was actually in the first lineup. It was Lori Crebe, Ali, and Sandra. And so I choreographed them. And then Lori wasn't quite right. And she was she had other things that she was into too. She was a comedic actress as well, and she's still working today. And so I decided they thought with my background that it would be good for me to like be the company like manager kind of thing, you know, to be in charge of the costumes. It took us six hours to get ready. I mean, it was major, the hair and the makeup and the full lashes and the drawing. And I did everybody's hair and makeup, so it, it took quite a while. I think towards the end, we were, it was a little bit, I don't know how much the girls loved it actually, but every they looked gorgeous, you know? And it was like part of our whole mystique, you know, to, to look like that. Throughout my interviews for this episode, it was clear to me that Lori Miller was the driving force behind Exposé's striking early image. Just picture it. Big hair, flashy makeup, revealing outfits. It was a blueprint that was later followed by generations of female performers. When Lady Gaga came out years later, I thought, oh my God, it looks like the original Exposé because that's kind of how it was. I don't even know where I got the whole thing to do the makeup on our faces. You know, it was all rhinestones and all the costumes were hand painted. I used to do all the painting on that. And there was a girl named Debbie Ohanian who owned a clothing line called Meet Me in Miami. And she did all our costumes. They were, they were great. We always had jackets on because expose, right? So we always took something off, you know, it was gloves or jackets or whatever. And we did have quite a big male audience, but we also had a lot of girls too. There was a show way back when where they used to lip sync. I can't remember the name of it, it was on TV. And there was all these little girls would come out dressed like us, like they copied our costume to the T and did the face and the hair and the whole thing. It was just super fun. It 
originally, Lewis was kind of conservative and because he was very protective and, you know, with Allie, because that was his girlfriend, he wanted us to look more like the Pointer Sisters, more like the 40s. So when we first came out, we had like long, tight dresses on with hats and gloves. And there's some pictures of that. I still have it. You see our original promo shot. We're wearing like these little hats and we have these vests on. It was very buttoned up. And that's where the choreography of all the arms, because our knees were together, because we had those pencil skirts on. That turned, so then when Ali and Louis decided they were gonna be together, I took one outfit like that and I cut it up, I shredded it. We started showing our bellies and then we were like wearing tights and short, short, you know, so we, we wanted to dance, we wanted to move. And the, the idea, and a lot of times we had microphones with cords, so I had to create the choreography so that we could switch because we all sang lead. So we could do the switch and be able to move the microphones around at the same time as they were all. Not that we had sound man, God, <laughs> that would have been amazing. But you know, you don't know any better back then. You just do your best. And I tried my best to uh, have a safe scenario for everybody. With all pieces of the expose puzzle put together, Lewis got down to work on the production and recording of Point of No Return with Ali on lead vocal. And although Ali's thick Miami accent was part of the charm the song had, according to Lori, she wasn't fully confident in her delivery. hates that version of her voice on it. She says, I sound so nasal. I became such a better singer after that. I mean, she was very, very shy. You know, she's of intellect, Ellie. She's a reader, she's into politics. She's, you know, very smart girl. And she was very nervous about performing, always. It was, you know, I mean, when she got into it, she was fantastic, but you know, it was really hard for her. The way production works is that, you know, I would spend easily uh, a month, you know, 10, 12, 16 hour days in the studio, getting all the music right. And then they would come in and sing their part and then that was it. Sing the bleeds, sing the backgrounds and that was it. And then I would mix the song. So that would take another day, maybe two, you know, mixing down the song. I was working on a lot of songs and, and you know, that's one that stood out. Everybody, all of them, Frank and, all the people around the studio that would come and hang out and other DJs, hey, that song sounds good. You should put it out. And and that's what we did. You know, it was just one of uh, probably 10 or 12 that I was working on at the time. I'm not singing on it. And either is Sandra. I'm on the, oh, oh, oh. You know that part? Oh, oh, oh. And actually, that's not true because the, all the air parts on Point of No Return and all of our music, from the original girls, all the, ah, that's me. I was the, that I added that and Lewis liked it, you know? So he, he did give us some freedom to kind of do our thing. Point of No Return was officially released on Pantera Records in late 1984. And it soon became a smash hit 
on radio stations and dance clubs all over South Florida. To promote the track, the trio went out on the road, playing to audiences in New York, Los Angeles, and beyond. For Ali, Sande, and Lori, the tour setup was both exciting and challenging. We would go to these clubs, like, let's just take Roseland Ballroom, for instance, in New York. There are, like, two little monitors on the stage, and the oldest, most, can I say fucked up? Fucked up, beat up microphones you ever saw in your life, corded, corded, right? No effects on the vocal. We have this humongous track, and we're trying to sing live. We always sang live. We never lip sync. It was hard. It was challenging. It was hard to hear. We didn't have... We couldn't hear, like little, like it's like the size of your computer or your laptop, monitors on the floor. And honestly, I'm so embarrassed about this, but I will tell you, I remember the first, one of the first times we did Roseland and they started barking at us. This is back in the day of Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Go for it. Go for it. Oh, boy. Thank you. I was like, why are they barking? <laughs> what mean? Why are they barking? Remember? <laughs> there was like it's a good thing it's a good thing <laughs> i wasn't sure but you know that was mostly the situation we were in clubs that weren't prepared to do live performances and you know it was hard it was hard to sing live against that track with no effects no reverb no in-ear monitors no no real good monitor system for us so it was challenging but we we got better and better as we, you know as we do chameleons you just adapt right when we were performing especially when we were going out to california that though the fans and the djs in california are like really besides miami but they really put us on the map so we would fly out on a thursday right and we would do maybe two shows each night so we were going from one show to the next to the next it was already, the police were already there. The fire department was already there because it was that packed. I mean, these weren't huge venues, you know, they were, we were pulling people up on stage. It was something about just the timing. I think all the chemistry of the three of us and our interaction with the, with the audience and our show was very choreographed and very, but we had a lot of fun and we had Sandra, we all had a lot of fun on stage with the audience, but, um, what I want to say is that that energy kind of that era, you know, really implemented like a, a vibe with that music, you know, it's like it's connected. Their efforts paid off big time when Arista Records got word of Expose's growing popularity in the dance clubs and decided to release the 12-inch single of Point of No Return on March 11, 1985. Within weeks, it rocketed to the number one spot on Billboard's Hot Dance Club chart, where it stayed for two consecutive weeks. Expose was then quickly signed to the same record label as other singing divas, like Aretha Franklin, who was experiencing a career resurgence with the album Who's Suming Who, Dionne Warwick, and Dionne's cousin, you know her as The Voice, Whitney Houston. After the release of Exposed to Love, the follow-up single to Point of No Return, Ali, Laurie, and Sande 
headed into the studio to record their debut LP for Arista, Exposure, and rehearsed to support Lisa Lisa and the Cold Jam on a nationwide tour. They also earned, and excuse the pun, Exposure after being profiled on a local Florida newscast as performers on the cusp of superstardom. Here's our expose about the girls behind the sound of expose, a group giving other South Florida groups a run for their money. Audience say, do you know who expose is? And they say, yeah, it's those three women that get on stage and party. <laughs> then I can sit back and say, I've achieved my goals. I think we're going to hear a lot more from those young ladies. Yes, days sir. They're good. For a while, it seemed that nothing could go wrong with the expose project. Until they did. The funny thing is that I did Point of Return, Exposed to Love with the three original girls. Then we were going to do the album, which was going to start out with the Come Go With Me. I decided to change all three girls. And it was a mutual thing. The, 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 the first three generation, they were uh, also, you know, uh, on board with, with uh, changing the group. And just like that, the original Exposé lineup was changed. We just heard Lewis state that it was a mutual decision. But you know the old saying, there are always two sides to every story. And you can imagine that Loris's account is definitely different than Lewis's. For her, it was the culmination of several uncomfortable and disappointing situations built up over the course of almost two years that led to the end of the first generation of Exposé. The contract that they wanted me to sign was crazy. It was so ridiculous. It was for like 12 years. It was 60-40 like management deal, 60 for them. And they would own all the rights to all my... I said, no, you, you can't do that with me. I, I'm going to do choreography, costuming, makeup, you know, designing the show and being the spokesperson. You can't own all of that of me. I never signed the contract, hence, so I never got any royalties. I trusted Frank Diaz, who was my fiance, and he's the executive producer. I trusted these guys, but they didn't care about me. They were, you know, subsequently, you'll see that as they went on, they didn't take care of business, and they never did with us. They were paying us $100 each. And they were making $5,000 a show. And we were doing like four shows in a weekend, you know, so it just wasn't cool. And when the new girls came in, they had trouble. They went to court, they fought for it. You know, that was all part of the reason why I wanted to walk away. Besides the fact that there was a lot of drug abuse and there was a lot of floating money and there was a lot of disrespect. And the government came back and seized everything. And Frank ended up going, and he's a minister now, so he's totally, you know, clean. You know, for a long time, he blamed everything on me and the whole falling apart of, like, I was so crushed. I was going to be the only original one left in the group. And it was so hard for me that, you know, after we had finished the album, I was just like, I can't, I, I have to. It's just not right for the new girls. and. Sandra was the only one who didn't know that she was actually going to be let go. She, she had issues as well, and that, that ended up being her demise as well. She was pretty tough on the road, too. Um, she was one of the reasons that 
and I've never said this before because I don't want to say anything bad about it anyway. I love Sandra, but she was one of the reasons why Ali wanted to leave, and that's why the whole thing started to fall apart because Ali was not comfortable and she just wanted to do other things. It all came to a head one night at the waterfront, a popular gay nightclub in Miami. So we were having a show there, and um, they wouldn't let our road manager in because he didn't get along with the owner there. Uh, I won't say his name. And um, then Frank showed up, and at that point, Frank and I had had a falling out, so he showed up, and he was quite altered and had two women on each of his arms and was trying to run the show and messing everything up. And we're in a gay club, which is my favorite. I loved it. That was like my reign, you know, where my people were. And um, I just decided, and plus we had already been in the studio recording the album, but they hadn't told Sandra anything. And Sandra sort of backed me up on the wall. She was pretty strong. She was a bodybuilder and sort of lifted me up on the wall. You don't tell me what's you don't tell me what's going on. I swear I'm going to... And, and then Frank's out there and he's drunk and he's got these two strippers on his arms and he's trying to run the show and the lights are turning off and turning on and the track is messed up. And I said, let's have a round of drinks up here on the stage because I have a feeling it is never going to be like this again. And I had just decided right then and there that they weren't telling Sandra anything. They could do the same thing to me. And this is what these guys are going to control my career and want to own in the contract with bullshit. And I just, I quit on stage that night. I just said, you know, I love you all. Let's just have a toast to this great music and it's never going to be like this again. Arista called me and Dave said to me, Dave German said, are you sure? I mean, you spent so much time and energy and love. And, and at the time, I already had an, another record deal with Debbie Ohanian for Meet Me in Miami. It was like a small, you know, she was in her first record. She was in the clothing business on Meet Me in Miami Music. And in the song that I did with Michael Morahong called Love is a Natural Magical Thing. And I just, I was just heartbroken because Ali was going to leave and... You know, it was just all was going to be so different. And I know that um, the new girls weren't so much into doing, I mean, I think Joya was, but, you know, they wanted to change everything, which was okay. I was cool with it. It's just, I don't know, you know, you get to that point where you just can't, you know, and it's just like, I got to, I have to. So they were pissed because we had already actually finished the album and done all the background vocals and I'd done all my leads. I was singing December and Love is Our Destiny. And um, so they put out a cease and desist. I think they sort of stomped on my record that I was releasing, that love is a natural magical thing, and kind of put it out in the industry that I was the bad guy. And so it was very hurtful. And I just, you know, walked away from it and continued to just do my thing. Once again, auditions were held to fill the spots of the new expose. In the case of Ali, her replacement was spotted at an L.A. nightclub. They were in California doing a show, 
and the opening act was a local act called Seabreeze and and Jeanette sang and she and then they came to me oh Louis you got to hear this girl I think she sounds just like Ali you know and so that's how I brought in Jeanette and then found uh, Anne through a friend of mine and Joya through another friend of mine and that's how I, I found the other, the next generation uh, expose everybody especially Miami because they had seen the first generation so many times I mean in clubs they were they were literally performing every month so everybody knew them and everybody was mad when when i changed the girls but then when come go with me came out it was so well taken that they kind of like okay all right we'll we'll let you slide <laughs> The new expose, Jeanette Jurado, Anne Curles, and Joya Bruno released their debut single on Arista Records, Come Go With Me, in January 1987. It remained in the American Top 40 for 12 weeks, peaking at number 5 and starting a successful streak of four consecutive Top 10 singles from exposure. They became the first group to have four hits all stemming from their debut album. One of them was the summer 1987 re-release of Point of No Return, this time with Jeanette on lead vocal. It was mixed a little bit more pop, I think, maybe, if anything. You know, if you hear them back to back, some people want to only play the original and then some people only want to play the, the, the second version. So it's, it's like 50-50. <laughs> so if you bought the first 125,000 CDs, you get Ollie. If you bought 125 and one, and so and, and upward to the over two million, then you're gonna get Jeanette. So we switched vocalists in the middle of the album. So I don't know if that's ever been done before. Actually, that'd be that'd be I'd be, be curious to know if if somebody released an album with one vocalist and then replaced that artist with another vocalist and then kept selling after that. Jeanette's a great singer, so why shouldn't she have, if she's, if they're going to be promoting it and touring it, it should be her voice. You know, I, I still like the original better, but I like it. It's, you know, honestly, when I first heard the album and I really gave it a good listen, I was, you know, we did all those demos that were on there, you know, and I just heard a lot of off-pitch singing not necessarily saying that us all of us there were moments like i just wish it would have been produced a little better and i wasn't super proud of it because i don't know it just wasn't the same you know the original version of december was different and love is our destiny was different and it's just it was hard you know it was like two groups on there plus a plethora of other singers on there too <laughs> It was just so different. I'm just so glad I had the experience, but it just was hard to, you know, love that album as much as I wanted to.
Louis Martinet, and Lori Miller are currently keeping busy in their different endeavors. Louis is gathering previously unreleased demos and mixes that he hopes will be included as bonus tracks on the remastered and expanded edition of Exposé's third Arista album, simply titled Exposé, originally released in 1993. Lori, on the other hand, runs her own production company, Chica, and has continued in the music industry after leaving Exposé. She's also working on a screenplay for a potential docuseries about her time with the group. Exposé's point of no return remains a staple of 80s dance club music, a bright example of freestyle, a glimpse of a careless, innocent, and exciting time for many of us who are fortunate enough to live it. The song has been featured on Hollywood films and even on TV shows such as Pose and RuPaul's Drag Race. The question remains, what is it about this song that has captivated dancegoers since its original release in 1984? Is it the beat, the synth, the vibe, the vocal, or all of the above? The synthesizers definitely, you know, give it the, 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 the life and then the beat with some Latin influences also give it, you know, the, the, uh, the underlying soul, I guess, if you want to call it. I mean, it's just a great feeling. I mean, I, I, it's it's something that you can't really explain. It's it's great. I mean, there's nothing like it. It's probably the same as uh, hitting a home run in the World Series. You know, something like that. You know, it's a great feeling. It's just a, you being in the right place in the right time with the right song and the right look and the right thing and the right energy. It's magic, you know, you just can't break it down to figure out that what the formula was. It's just timing and, you know, it was just fun. It was freedom. Fun, freedom, love. And my girls, we were like a little pack, you know, it was, it was awesome when it was awesome. It's a lot of traveling. It was a lot of time in limos. It wasn't very glamorous. It was a lot of work, you know, so those three years really put us, you know, that we, the original trio were together. We really put a lot of work in, so now if there's a little bit of bittersweetness to it, too, you know, that nobody uh, recognized that. Thanks to Louis Martinet and Lori Miller for their contributions to this episode, and thank you for listening in. Tunes is a series of music memoirs produced and hosted by Diego Martinez. My executive producer is Nick Fresh, and my audio engineer is Adam Fogel. If you want to join the conversation and see exclusive content related to this story, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TunesPod. That is C-H-O-O-N-S-P-O-D. Rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
See you next time as we explore the longevity of music's underrated compositions on another episode of Tunes. Tunes.